This triangular cookie with sweets in the center shares a name with a man named Haman, Haman, Hamantashen. Whether it's chocolate, prune, or poppy seeds, Haman was a man who sought to annihilate an entire nation. Every time his name is mentioned in the reading of the Megillah, everyone goes boo. Why did he sought to kill and eliminate an entire nation? What about all of the Hamans in future generations? What did they have against the Jews? And what is the Torah's response to this hate? Good afternoon. It's Tuesday. Tuesday, 12.15 p.m., time for lunch and learn. Today is 158, and we're back here to study together, to explore another topic from a Jewish perspective. Welcome Jody, and welcome Roy, and welcome everybody joining us. We are getting ready to begin. Today's topic is the Jewish response to hate. We're going to talk about, well, explore some ideas mentioned in the Talmud and Midrash, in the Torah, and see if after 60 minutes we can emerge with a better understanding of our response to hate. Let's begin with a blessing. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu Malach HaLam She'akol Ne'yah B'Dvaro Set time of the week again, and we have a set time for studying Torah. And we're going to try to understand, we get into the psyche or the better insight into what's known as anti-Semitism. I'm no scholar on anti-Semitism, but we'll explore and we'll look at it. We'll examine some sources of Torah of why is this the case? Why is it part of reality that there are those who dislike us, as Haman did in the time of the Purim story? We're getting ready for the Purim holiday, which is next week, Wednesday evening and Thursday on March 16th in the evening and March 17th. And last week we discussed Esther and some relevant lessons of the life of Esther in the palace. Today we'll talk about the deal that Haman and Ahasuerus struck to annihilate, to eliminate, to do away with the Jewish people. That was 2300 years ago and since then there were those who stood up against the Jewish people. What is behind this idea, why do they hate us, and what is our response to this hatred? So <clears throat> today's lesson is divided into three sections. We usually do four. Today is three sections, three ideas shared uh, from Torah sources. And on this link, there is, on this post, there is a link to today's source sheet. You can print it out or download it. You can check your email inbox if you're on an email list to get ready as we go through these sources together and gain a better understanding of the Torah's perspective on and response to this um, hatred that certain people possess against us. Are we ready? And next time we take a bite into a hamantash and we think of Haman, we can think about what we're about to study. So let's begin with our first section <clears throat> titled Principle. This principle. So this story takes us back. We'll look at the Megillah 
which has 10 chapters, is the final book of the Tanakh, of the entire Torah, which we read on Purim. And the story took place about 2,300 years ago. The Jewish people are exiled from their land. The temple built by King Solomon in Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians came the Medians and the Persians. And now the Jewish people are close to 70 years living in exile. And they are residing under the Persian Empire, led by King Ahasuerus, who was the son of Cyrus, uh, and the, the Persian king and the father of Darius II. Achashverosh. And he has a top minister and his name is Haman. Haman. Haman was promoted to second in command. Mishne Lamelech. Second in command. He is the viceroy over the land and everybody is bowing and respecting this man named Haman. And the uh, verse tells us in source number one, Jewish people are living relatively um, quiet, things are tranquil, things are not too bad for them under the Persians, and suddenly their life is disrupted with a very grave decree. Source number one, Haman said to King Ahasuerus, this is chapter three in the Megillah, after Haman is promoted, he suddenly he has... Um, plans for a certain nation. Haman comes to King Ahasuerus and he says there are, there is a certain people scattered and separate among the peoples throughout all the provinces of your kingdom. Now there was 127 provinces under the reign of Ahasuerus. So there is a certain group of people. They're scattered around. They're separate. They're unique. They're distinct. And their laws differ from those of every people. There are all kinds of people and groups and cultures living in the Persian Empire. But the Jews, they're just different than everybody. And they do not keep the king's laws. It is therefore of no use for the king to let them be. If it pleases the king, let it be written to destroy them. Haman presents an argument to King Ahasuerus to have the Jews eliminated from his kingdom, they are different. They are a uh, a group that do not keep the king's laws. They're not good for the society. There is no use for the king to let them be. If it pleases the king, let it be written to destroy them. Source number two, the king took his signet, took his ring off, the special ring, the signet ring, and he gave it to Haman, the adversary of the Jews, giving him permission to do as he wishes with this nation. Written instructions were dispatched by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, massacre, and exterminate all the Jews, young and old, children and women, on a single day, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Haman was a bit superstitious, and although this decree came out months and months before, but he drew lots, and the month that came out was the month of Adar, and specifically on the 13th day of Adar, there was one day for all of the people in all 127 provinces to go to the Jewish neighbors, the women, the children, the men, and to massacre, to exterminate them in one day. And there was nowhere for the Jews to hide. 
Haman didn't want this decree to take place in a month where there was a Jewish holiday or some good luck time for the Jewish people. So Adar at that time did not have the holiday of Purim and he thought that's a great month to kill for this decree to um, materialize. So Haman and Achashverosh come out with this decree. Now Haman was not the first one in Jewish history to stand up and be despised by the Jews. Going back to the fathers of our nation, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we find that Isaac, Yitzchak, had to leave the land, had to leave his hometown in Israel and move to, to Pelishtim, to the Philistine um, area. And there he was tormented by the Philistines. Why? Source number three, the Torah tells us in the book of Genesis, the king of the Philistines, Avimelech, he said to Yitzchak, Go away from us, for you have become far too big for us. This, this is in Genesis. Yitzchak was very successful. He built, he dug wells, and things were, were going well for him. And Avimelech, uh, men, they 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 didn't like this. They didn't like what's happening, and they stuffed the pits and the the wells. Excuse me, that uh, Yitzchak would would uh, dig. And the Torah goes on to describe the suffering that Yitzchak went to until Avimelech tells him, "Just get out of here. Get away from us. Go away. You have become far too big for us." That was more probably 1,200 years before Haman came. And then after Yitzchak, he had a son Jacob and his grandchildren ended up in Egypt. And what happened in Egypt? The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, said to his people, to the Egyptians, Look, the Israelite people are much too numerous for us. They were as thorns in the eyes of the Egyptians. The book of Exodus tells us that then when the Jewish people were living in Egypt, the Jewish people... Uh, were despised by the Egyptians. The Egyptians looked at them as thorns. Nobody likes to have thorns poking them and pricking them. They're just too numerous. They're Jewish people. They're just, it's just, they're just, they should not be here. They should be out of here. We have to do away with them. And they began to enslave them and kill their babies and so on. This is not something that started with Haman, but Haman was unique. Haman sought to destroy the entire nation, men, women, and children, in one day, in every place where the Jewish people were living, in the, under the, the reign of the empire, the vast empire of King Ahasuerus, the Persian king. And Haman was actually a descendant of Amalek, the Amalek nation who fought war against the Jewish people in the desert, and Haman comes years later with this decree. What did the Jewish people do wrong? What did they do to deserve such a decree? Source number four. We see that this phenomenon is coined in the words of the Midrash. When Yaakov, the son of Isaac, Jacob, after many years of being uh, being away from his brother Esau, Esau, who sought to kill him, finally there is a confrontation. Jacob is on his way back with his family, and he's going to meet his brother Esau. 
Source number four, the Torah tells us, Esav ran towards Yaakov. Uh, Yaakov was very scared. Jacob was scared. He prayed. He prepared gifts. He he uh, prepared for war. He, he didn't know what's going to be with his with this meeting with his with his brother after so many years. Esav ran toward Yaakov and embraced him, and he fell on his neck and kissed him. Even though Jacob was so worried, what's going to be Esav's response? But he actually embraced him and he kissed him and he hugged him. Says Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai in the Midrash, Rabbi Shimon bar Ben Yochai said, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai was author of the Zohar, of the Kabbalah, it is a well-known law that Esav hated Yaakov. But his compassion was moved at that time, and he kissed him wholeheartedly. So, it is a well-known law. That's a halacha. The law says that Esav hated Yaakov. So how did he embrace him? At that moment, his compassion was moved. Yaakov, Jacob, offered such a vast and and uh, beautiful gift to Esav, and they bowed to him and so on. At that moment, his compassion was moved and he kissed him wholeheartedly. But generally, the rule is that Esav hates Yaakov. And Haman was a descendant of Esav. Esav had a son, Eliphaz. Eliphaz had a son, Amalek. And Amalek had a great-great-grandson named Agag. And Haman was a descendant of Agag. Haman Hagagi, he is referred to in the Megillah, the Agagite, who was from the family of Amalek, from Esav. And this reality is recognized in, in Jewish texts and is consistent uh, this this pattern of, of hatred throughout the generations is probably uh, not a century that we cannot point to somebody who was out there for the Jewish people. And even when a convert or a non-Jewish person comes to a, a Jewish court, to the rabbis, and he wants to convert, one of the things, we studied this a few months ago, is we the rabbis would will try to persuade him not to join the Jewish people. So they, they tell him, are you sure you know what you're getting yourself into? The Jewish people are pushed around. There's tri- tri- tribulations. They don't have an easy life. There are people that hate them, and they, they're suffering. That was a common, uh, a consistent um, element of Jewish life. Times were, Sometimes were better. Some countries were worse or better. But overall, this is this is part of the Jewish existence. And the phrase that the Midrash says is that it is a well-known law. And it's it's interesting because it's not a law. It's not something we have to observe. Why the expression, it is a law? It is a well-known halacha that Esav hates Yaakov. So there is an explanation from Rabbi Menachem Zembe. Rabbi Menachem Zembe was a uh, Polish rabbi. He lived in Warsaw and lived in the Warsaw Ghetto through the war and was killed during the uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto around Pesach time, Passover 1943. Actually, uh, he was buried temporarily in the Warsaw Ghetto, in the, in the house where he was, in the yard. And years later, 1958, he was, his remains were, were taken and transferred and he was buried in Israel. Um, and this, he was a very brilliant rabbi, 
And he writes the following. Rabbi Menachem Zembe. Source number five. Reality demonstrates that there is not even one valid reason for anti-Semitism. The hatred defies logic and reason. Their hearts have simply turned to hating God's people. There are people that try to figure out why. He says, reality demonstrates that it's just something beyond logic. It's beyond reason. In one place, they hate Jews because they are capitalists. In another, because they are socialists. Here they hate them because they work harder and are smarter than the average individual. There, they hate them because they are a useless burden on society. Here, they are too pious and zealous. There, they are too progressive and secular. That's how it always is. The reasons are always contradictory. Asav's hatred is like a settled principle that can be stated without any supporting rationale. In Jewish uh, Torah terminology, when we say something is a halacha, this is the law, not every law has a rationale. Is there an explanation? This is what this is God's wisdom. This is what the Torah says. You want to understand why wool and linen mixed together is prohibited? This is the law. This is what God said. Some things we understand. Some things we can just say, even though we don't have a reason, there's no rationale, there's no logical explanation. This is the law. This is the way God set it up. This is God's wisdom. So the term to, to describe the hatred that Esau, who is the first, we can say, uh, real Jew hater, hiding his brother Jacob, the term to describe this feeling, this hatred, is a halacha. This is the law. It is a well-known law. It is an established law, not because it's logical. This is the law. This is the way it is. Because you see clearly that some people say the Nazis should have finished their job, and some people say the the Holocaust never happened. There are all kinds of statements, and throughout history, the Jewish people are being blamed for different things because that is not the reason. That it may be the expression, but at the core, there is something irrational. As we see this in source number six, and they say that uh, a Jew was once surrounded, 1940s is Berlin, a Jew was surrounded by a group of Nazis, and they asked him, tell me Jew, Jew boy, who started the war? Whose fault is this war? The Jew was uh, not stupid, he was a little scared, <laughs> and he says, it was the Jews, it's the Jews' fault. And after a moment he adds, and the motorcyclists, So they ask him, the motorcyclists, why the motorcyclists? So he responds, and why the Jews? What do they do wrong? We find that source number six, when the Jewish people were in the desert, there was a man named Balak. Balak was the king of Moab. And he heard the Jewish people are advancing, they're coming closer to Israel, and he was afraid that they're going to wage war with his country and with all kinds of miraculous things, they will be victorious. So he hires a man named Bilam, or Balaam, who was a sorcerer, a, a non-Jewish uh, prophet, to come and curse the Jewish people. Source number six, Balaam, Balak, the king of Moab, sent messengers to Balaam, 
put a curse upon the Jewish people for me. Why? Since they are too numerous for me. Perhaps, excuse me, I can thus defeat them and drive them out of the land. All Balak really wanted was that the Jews should get out of his way. They should not come and conquer his country, take over his land. He was worried for himself and his people. That That's somewhat logical. But Balaam said, I will drive them out of the world. Says Rashi, Balaam hated them even more than Balak. Balak just wants them to get out of here. Get, get away from my people. Don't. He was afraid that they will wage war against his nation. Balak was worried for himself. Bilam just had this intense hatred for the Jewish people and he just wanted to drive them out of the world completely. Even if they were not in his region, they were not in his face. Why? Just because. Not for any reason. As the saying goes that Jewish people are hated not because of... The Jews are not hated because of evil qualities. But evil qualities are sought for in them because they are hated. So if it's capitalist, that's the issue. If it's the socialist, if they're poor, if they're rich, or, you know, each place, each country, each decade or century will find the excuse. That's merely an expression of what's, what's beneath that. It's like a virus. There can be a mutation, but the virus is there. So that's the first principle. The first principle is that the Torah recognizes that there is this consistency, there's a pattern that Jewish people are pushed about and there is the, uh, a, a hatred, or there was, sometimes more, sometimes less, for this nation. It is a halacha. It is not something to uh, try and justify and try to figure out the reason there's no reason. It just is. And as the story goes, there were these this, uh, two countries were uh, negotiating about something, and one uh, minister says to the other minister of the other country, says, well, if my demands are not met at this table, at the conference table, then my people will be so irritated that they will go and get drunk and go out and massacre the Jews. So the other minister says, okay, and what's going to happen if your demands are met? He says, well, then my people will be so elated, they'll be so happy that they will go and drink, they will get drunk and go out and massacre the Jews. So whatever happens, somehow the Jews are to be blamed. And the victim. Source number seven. Let's move on to get back to the Purim story. So the fact that Haman had this uh, distaste, this dislike for the Jewish people, that 2300 years ago he came up with this decree and he got the agreement of the King Achashverosh to annihilate the Jewish people. Thank God now we have a holiday after his demise, after his downfall. We have the holiday of Purim which we'll be celebrating next week. But what did Haman really have against the Jewish people? We can say it's irrational, it is not something logical, but there is an interesting um, analogy given, given in the Talmud, which perhaps will give us a bit of insight into the psyche of this man named Haman, 
um, who shares a name with these triangular cookies called the Hamantashen that are traditionally eaten on the holiday of Purim. Let's take a look at source number seven. Okay. To what may Achashve, hello Michael, to what may Achashverosh and Haman be compared to two individuals? One had a mound in the middle of his field and the other had a ditch in the middle of his field. One day they met one another. The owner of the ditch said to the owner of the mound, sell me your mound. The mound's owner said to him, take it for free. If only you had done so sooner. So to who, to what can Achashverosh and Haman be compared? You have two people. One person, he has a beautiful field. Everything's flat, everything's nice. But there's a mound, there's a pile, there's a heap right in the middle of his field. He wants to get rid of it. If only someone can take away this mound. And there's another guy, he has a ditch. Haman is like, he has, there's a ditch. And this ditch is also not such a nice thing. Everything is beautiful in his field. All of a sudden there's a hole. He's looking for something to fill this ditch, this trench. One day they meet up and they say, oh, I have a mound. I have a ditch. Would you sell me your mound to fill up my ditch? And he says, please, I'm looking for someone to remove my, my mound. Take it for free. Similarly, Haman and Achashverosh both shared a dislike for the Jewish people. To Achashverosh, they were like a mound. To Haman, they were like a ditch. Something disrupting their beautiful field. So Haman came to Achashverosh and said, I have a ditch. Achashverosh said, I have a mound. Take them. Please do with them as you please. For free. So what is the Talmud trying to tell us with this analogy, with this parable? Everything is uh, everything in the in the Talmud has meaning. You could have just said Achashverosh and Haman both hated the Jewish people and wanted to do away with them. What is this analogy telling us? And why to Achashverosh were they like a mound, and to Haman were they as a ditch? What do these things represent? So we have a beautiful explanation, not so beautiful, but. Uh, Beautiful way of understanding this Talmud, this passage of the Talmud given by the Maharal. The Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Loi, who was a rabbi about four or five hundred years ago who lived in the city of Prague. And he's buried there till, till today. Many people come up to his grave. Great uh, holy man and Kabbalist. He writes the following. Source number eight. When discussing Achashverosh's perspective, the Jews are referred to as a mound, a pile, a heap. A mound is not harmful to the owner of a field. It's simply extraneous. It's extra. It is not needed. We don't need this extra pile. A trench, on the other hand, is a void. There's something missing. Not just extra. There's a, there's a trench over here. The whole field is flat. Here, there's something missing. There's a void. Haman considered the Jews as a pit. The very, their very presence created a lack and void. So the Talmud's passage is telling us 
trying to climb into, get into the psyche of Achashverosh, of Haman, they were different. The way they viewed the Jewish people were different. To one, to Achashverosh, they were a mound. To Haman, they were a ditch. What does that mean? Source number nine, to Achashverosh, the Jew was a cumbersome mound in the middle of his field. He felt that the world was his domain. He was the king. He was the ruler. And the Jew had no business being there. This mound was taking up space. And he wanted it out. Achashverosh was saying, you are in the way. You don't belong here. You are an obstacle, an eyesore, a blot on humanity. You're different. You're distinct. Your ways are different than us. Get out of here. What are you doing in this world? To him, the Jews were a mound. It's just extra. It's an unwanted lump. Why are you here? You're different than us. You have different ways. You're just get out of here. Go, go to, what do they say? Go back to Europe. Go away. You're extra. You're like a mound. It's nothing dangerous, really, but you're just a sore. You're an obstacle. That is the way Achashverosh viewed the Jewish people as a mound. And he was looking to get this mound removed from his beautiful field. Achashverosh was not very clever. He's known as a foolish king, as the Talmud says. As we mentioned last week, he killed his first wife, Vashti, on the advice of his friend. And then he killed his good friend on the advice of his second wife, Esther. Achashverosh was just looking to get rid of this different thing that was there in his province. Haman had a different issue. Source number 10, we turn the page to Haman, the Jew was a ditch. As the Talmud says to Haman, the Jews were a charitz, they were a ditch, they were a trench. What's a trench? There's something missing. There's a lump that's in the ground, not over the ground, but there's a pit. That represents that to him, the hatred was born from a feeling of hollowness. Haman thought he had a beautiful life. Haman was very, very wealthy. Talmud says he became wealthy from the riches, the treasures of the temple that he stole. He was extremely wealthy, one of the wealthiest people that ever lived. He had many, many children. Some say 40, some say 70, 100. He had many children. He had honor. He had respect. He had fame. Everybody bowed to him when he would walk in the streets. He had a wife that was uh, very wise. Actually, the Talmud says Zeresh was a very wise wife. We'll get to that question, Jody, a little bit later. It's an interesting question. Why would we name a cookie after such a man? But to Haman, he thought he had a beautiful life. Everything was good. Continuing in source 10, yet right in the heart of his field, there was a gaping hole, says the Talmud to Haman. The Jews were like a charitz. They were like a ditch. There was a hole in his beautiful life, a yawning emptiness that made him hollow. When he confronted the Jews' ways of living, way of living, he saw people living for a higher purpose. Connecting to eternity wasn't just about having more money in your account and going on another vacation and being uh, respected. He saw people living for a higher purpose. 
connecting to eternity, developing a relationship with God, influencing society for the better. This made him aware of a deep void in his heart and life, even if he couldn't quite identify its source. So he resented the presence of the Jewish people, which triggered a feeling of hollowness within him. Source 11, the true cause of anti-Semitism is not the mound, it is the ditch. At their core, those who hate others actually hate themselves. Beneath their macho exteriors lies a profound emptiness. They subconsciously sense that their ideology is false, their beliefs empty, their lives void of meaning. And when you are empty, you hate those who are full. When you lack meaning, you envy those who have it. And there is no people that represents higher purpose and eternal truth than the Jewish people. So when Haman was confronted with the Jewish people's way of life, it made him have this feeling and his way of dealing with it was doing away with this trigger, eliminating the people, eliminating this nation which represented a people who, who lived life with meaning. He had a beautiful life, but it was very material-driven. What did Hitler, may his name be erased, write in his book? That conscience is a Jewish invention. The Jewish people reminded him of what he was missing. He had a couple of options. He could, have heeded, he could have heeded the message and be inspired and be influenced by the Jewish people's way of life. You don't have to become Jewish. You can take the message and the values of Judaism and live as a good non-Jewish person and be good in the eyes of God and be honest and be kind and so on. Or you can do away with the trigger, with the reminder of what you are lacking. As the Talmud says, Source 12, why is it called Mount Sinai? The Torah was given to the Jewish people at this mountain, Mount Sinai, one of the most famous mountains. Sinai, why is it called Sinai? The Sinai Desert, Mount Sinai. Where? What does Sinai actually mean? Who, what's the definition of Sinai? And one of the definitions, the Talmud says, Source 12, why is it called Mount Sinai? Because it is a mountain upon which hatred towards the Jews descended for the nations of the world. Once the Torah was given to the Jewish people and they have this higher purpose, they have a, a relationship with God, living life with, with a purpose of making this world a better place and doing what God wants. From this mountain where this took place for the Jewish people, the name Sinai comes from the word Sina, like Sinat Chinam, which means baseless hatred. Sina means hatred. Ahava means love. Sina means hatred. This is a mountain which brought on a certain hatred for those, continues Rashi, because they did not accept the Torah. As the Talmud says elsewhere, God took the Torah around to every nation, but they did not accept it before coming to the Jewish people and asking them if they wanted to receive the Torah, which, to which the Jewish people enthusiastically responded, we will accept and we will do and we will hear. But the other nations said, no, this is not for us. They did not want the restrictions. They did not want to be bound. I could eat this and I can't eat that. I can marry this woman. I can't marry that man. It was too much for them. 
But after the fact that the Torah, that the Jewish people at this mountain accepted the Torah, Sinai, there began a Sinai hatred. The Jewish people to Haman were like a ditch. It brought out in him a void. Maybe subconsciously. But that is how the Talmud is giving us a bit of insight into Achashverosh, into Haman. And Haman is the real one, the, the real issue here. Achashverosh, eh, just get out of here. You're a mound, you're extra, just go away. You're just... Uh, you know, not needed here. You're different. You're you're an eyesore. You're an obstacle. Just you're like a mound. Just get it, get it out. But to Haman, there was something deeper, and that's the true uh, reason for anti-Semitism. And there's no, there's no. Um, better way of responding than just being proud of who we are. And continuing to live up to the life that we accepted at Mount Sinai. If somebody else is empty, feels empty, we do not make ourselves empty as a result. We fill ourselves up even more. And hopefully, the other will be inspired by us instead of despised by us. Now Haman had two choices. He could have he he, he chose to uh, eliminate the Jewish people. That was his solution to the Jewish problem to get rid of his conscience and get rid of that feeling of of uh, void and lack of meaning in his life. Or he could have been inspired by the Jewish people and heeded the message that the Jewish people were providing and inspire and be inspired to not just. Uh, look for a life of honor and respect and, uh, and riches, but to strive for a more meaningful life. That takes a little bit more work. Let's move on to our final section with uh, a beautiful explanation from the Rebbe given in 1965. Source number 13. Thank God here we're living in America and there is a uh, significant drop in anti-Semitism perhaps because there are many around us who have shared values and they take a, take a cue from the values of the Torah which uh, influence society, value of life, integrity, honesty, peace. Source number 13. <clears throat> that was a decree. Haman made a decree and Achashverosh agreed, but that didn't uh, happen. We're still here to tell the story. We were not annihilated on the 13th of Adar during that year. We celebrate it. What do we celebrate? We celebrate the downfall of Haman. We celebrate the salvation of the Jewish people. How did that come about? Let's take a look at source number 13. Haman, when he presented his argument, he presented the case for the extermination of the Jewish people to King Achashverosh, he described, as we saw in source number one, 
there's a distinct people, they're scattered, they do not abide to the king's laws, there's no use for these people. And the Talmud elaborates, source number 13, they do not eat from our food, nor do they marry from our women, nor do they marry off their women to us. Right? They have a special diet, kosher. They spend the entire year in idleness as they are constantly saying Shehi, Pehi, an acronym for it is Shabbos today, it is Passover today. Shehi is Shin, Hei, and Yud. Shabbos Hayom, or Pehi, Pesach Hayom. They have all these holidays, Shabbos, Passover, they can't work. That's how he described it. They're sitting and being idle. If a fly falls into the cup of one of them, he will throw the fly out and drink the wine it fell into. But if my master, the king, were to touch the glass of one of them, he would throw it to the ground and would not drink it. This is the law of kosher wines, that if an idol worshiper touches wine or swish, you know, um, uh, swishes it around, anything which may, which may have been associated with idol worship and which was the custom then to use wine, so that wine would not be able to be used. But a fly, as long as there's nothing left of the fly in the cup, technically you could remove the fly and drink the wine. I don't think I would do that. I would probably not drink that cup anymore. But technically, according to Jewish law, that's okay. And this is how Haman is describing the Jewish people. He is saying that these Jewish people, they're a threat to society. He has a strong argument. He wants to dispose of these people. He's accusing the Jewish people of, of they're, they're, they're um, a blotch. They're, uh, they're uh, people that need to be do, done away with. And Achashverosh here is the case. And he agrees. He gave him a signet ring. And what happens later? That Queen Esther, the new queen, which was hiding her identity as a Jewish woman, she hears of the decree, as we discussed last week, and she finally makes a party. She invites Achashverosh, she invites Haman, and she discloses to the king her identity. The king is asking, what's the reason? What do you want? I will give you anything. Up to half of the kingdom, source 14, Queen Esther replied, the first lady intervenes, and she tells the king, if I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it pleases the king, may my life be given to me, given me in my petition, and my people in my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be slain, and to perish. Now had we been sold for slaves and bondswomen, I would have kept silence. For the adversary has no consideration for the king's loss. Esther discloses, she reveals her identity, she is a Jewish woman, it is her people that are the ones, the Jewish people that are being doomed to be destroyed. And she's petitioning the king to grant her her request and save her life and the life of her people. But how, and, and what happens? Achashverosh hears uh, Esther's uh, revelation. He goes mad. He says, who is the one that's trying to kill these people? It's Haman. And he has Haman hanged on the gallows and, and gives the Jewish people permission to uh, protect themselves and stand up and, and, and so on. The story has a, an a abrupt uh, turnaround. But the question is, Haman made a strong case. 
he made an argument for to have the Jews destroyed. And Achashverosh agreed. So what changed suddenly? So Esther was a, was a Jewish woman. Okay. So the problem is still there. The issue is still there. There is a nation in his kingdom who shouldn't be there. They're different. And all of the arguments that Haman presented. They're a threat to society. They're going to influence other people to, 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 to go against the king and so on. How was this question answered? And one might say, well, they weren't answered. It's just that Esther, the, the king loved Esther and she won his heart over and it was all due to Esther's grace. Even though he didn't want the Jews, but in favor of Esther, so he granted a request. But that's not so, because Esther doesn't just say, hey, I'm Jewish, so save me. Esther starts speaking economic uh, reasoning here. She starts logic with him. She says, well, if the adversary really had your good intention, your, your, um, had good intentions for you, if they really cared for the king, then he wouldn't annihilate, he wouldn't kill the Jewish people, exterminate them, he would sell them as slaves, as bondswomen, and they would make much more money. So she starts arguing, she starts speaking logic to him. But in those words, the argument still stands. Where is the logic? We must say that in Esther's words, there is a response to Haman's arguments about why the Jewish people need not be eliminated. Source number 15. Achashverosh knew Esther intimately. He sensed her soul. He touched her grace and cherished her personality. He adored her glow, her charm. He knew Esther's character and values were noble, dignified, and pure. He chose her from thousands of young women, almost all of them not Jewish. Achashverosh was looking for a wife for four years. And every night he spent with another young woman. And he did not settle for any of them until he found Esther. Achashverosh knew Esther. Not just her look. Achashverosh knew her character, her traits, her way of life. And he admired her. He loved her. He cherished her. He just didn't know that she's Jewish. She never divulged her identity, her lineage, her nationality. So he went along. Haman comes and presents an argument. There are these people. They are distinct. They have their own way of life. They are a threat to society. Achashverosh buys in. He also doesn't like these people. But then, when Esther comes, source number 16, when he suddenly discovered, he sees up close a Jewish woman, he discovered that Esther was a proud member of the Jewish people, an adherent of the Jewish faith. He immediately realized the falsehood of Haman's arguments. Not through dialogue, not through debate, but through Esther's living presence. Looking at Esther, he was married to Esther at this time for five years. Looking at Esther, 
He understood that the Jews may be very different, but it is this otherness that has the power to inspire all the nations of the world. Just by living with a Jewish woman up close, and Esther now telling him, hey, you like me, you love me, you chose me from thousands of girls, of young women. You see who I am. You cherish my character. You admire it. And now I'm telling you that where did I get this from? Who am I? I am a proud Jewish woman. I am an adherent. And Esther would do these Jewish things in the palace. As we saw last week, she kept kosher and Shabbos and all the beautiful things that she was doing from Torah in the palace. And he tells her, she tells him, I'm doing this as a Jewish woman. So Achashverosh says, oh, this is what the Jewish people are about. Wow. They're not a threat to society. Esther doesn't have to go into dialogue, doesn't need to refute the arguments of Haman. Haman is saying they're a threat to society. Esther says, I am Jewish. I am Jewish. You, me, I'm the one, your wife that you cherish and you love and you chose for thousands of women. You know who I am? You know where I got this from? You know where, where this life that I'm living, this way of life comes from? I'm adhering to Judaism. I'm a Jewish person. This is the way of the Jews. Oh, Hashverosh says, if so, who is such a man that claims that such a way of life is a threat to society? That man is evil. Why would he want to eliminate such a people? Source 17, King Ahasuerus said, Who is this? And where is he? Who dared to do this? He knew Esther's qualities. It's just that before her confession, he didn't know that this is the way Jews behave. When he heard that her behaviors were Jewish behaviors, he immediately asked, Who dares to say that a nation that produces such a specimen as Esther is worthy of eradication? All Esther had to do is expose the reality. And the question is dissolved. Haman is saying that the people are harmful. They are undermining the empire, the rulership of the of Ahasuerus. They're a threat. Esther says, I am Jewish. And you know who I am. You know what kind of life I live. You know what kind of traits I live up to. So Ahasuerus says, yes. You're, this, is, this is the Jews. This is a Jewish behavior. Who is a man that would say that such a people need to be eradicated? We don't need to get into a dialogue with people have, who have issue with the Jewish way of life and Jewish people. All we need to do is show them a living example of how Jews live. And then the true reality, our living presence, is the best response and all questions dissolve. Source number 18. We don't fight emptiness by becoming more empty. Well, let's throw away our yarmulkes and let's throw away the Torah and then they'll love us. They'll hate us either way. As we said before, they'll find other ways. Sometimes it's the religion, then it's the gene, then it's the race, then it's this, then it's that. Those that inside of them have a void and those that hate us will hate us. 
We don't fight them. We don't fight emptiness by becoming more empty. And we don't make someone else's problem into our problem. Because they uh, don't want to change their lifestyle. They don't want to live a little bit more meaningful. We have to throw away our, our Torah. We don't make ourselves, our own, somebody else's problem into our own. In the face of irrational hate, we stay proudly and defiantly Jewish. Trusting in God and loyal to our people and Torah. The best way to show the world that we are not worthy of annihilation is by sticking to our faith and by going in God's ways. And hopefully they will see that living this kind of life is an, should be an inspiration to them. But while we hope that all those haters will one day find some meaning to fill their void, we will not sit by and be victims of those who haven't. We have to combat it. And if we need guards or we need to... Uh, you know, punish and do what we need to do to stop it. I'll just conclude with a little story that I watched from a Jewish woman. Her name was Ruth. She was a Holocaust survivor. And in 1942, she was about 12 years old. At that time, the law was that Jewish people needed to identify as Jewish and they needed to wear a badge on their shirt, on their uh, lapel, on their shirt, on their coat, on their arm, depending what year, which area, which place. At that time, she had to wear it on uh, as an armband, a band on her arm with a Jewish star. And she describes that one time she is walking and she had to be home at a certain time. There was a curfew and they had to be home. And as she's jogging and running home, 12 years old, seems like her badge slipped slipped off. It was not noticeable. It was not visible. Two SS Nazi guards approach her and they say, where is your badge of shame? In German, they said, wo ist dein Schandebande? Your badge of shame. To which she responded, it is not my badge of shame, it is my ere bande, my band, my badge of honor, of respect, of pride. And back and forth, the Germans said, no, it's your band of shame. They said, no, it's honor. And, and then she, all she remembers is waking up in the hospital. But ingrained in her was, even if she's living under a regime, a people who look down at her and refer to them as a shameful people, she was proud of the Jewish way of life. A badge of honor. Despite the suffering, she didn't throw away her Jewishness. She was proud of who she is, proud of her way of life, and proud to be a member of the people who have a code of morals, of ethics, given to us by God at Mount Sinai. That may be called Sinai, because through that, hatred descended. But that's not our problem. We have to be proud of who we are. 
And hopefully, like many others, there are many out there who love us and are inspired by the values of Judaism. So a bit of a hard topic, but an important topic to explore. The topic of what the Jewish response is. We're not going to help anything. Jewish people in Germany at that time were very much assimilated. And yet the hatred um, surfaced. But this mutation, that mutation, it is something that is a halacha. It is something which is an established law, defying logic, irrational. What we could do is be proud of who we are and like Esther, just present and display a living example of what it means to live life as a Jew. And hopefully, they'll take a lesson, excuse me, and heed the message of Judaism and what the Torah has to share for all of mankind. So, getting to our questions here, Hamantashin. So, as Stanley said, uh, Jody, Hamantashin, interesting how this got its name. doesn't say anywhere in Torah that these cookies are called Hamantashin. doesn't say anywhere in the Jewish books of law or uh, customs that it's called Hamantashin. It's a name somehow evolved, there are many theories. Hamantashin. Tashin means pockets. This cookie is made in a way that there's a pocket in the middle tucked under the folds of the dough where there's sweets. There's jam or chocolates or uh, poppy seeds. Um, how did it get to be called Hamon Tashin? Well, some say that he had a triangular hat similar to uh, Napoleon's hat. There is no source for this, explicit source. Perhaps he did, and just a tradition. But why would we really want to celebrate his hat? I'm not sure. Some say his ears were um, some somewhat in that shape. They were bent and looked something like, like a triangular cookie. Uh, some say that it was initially called Mon Tashin. Mon means seeds because it was remembering Esther's dedication to the Torah, even while living in the palace, eating seeds and things that were kosher are not cooked. So mon means seeds. It was a montashin, a pockets of seeds. Um, so I don't think that's really why it's called hamontashin. But you can enjoy the cookie anyways. Thank you for joining us for lunch and learn. Let me just scroll back if there's any other questions. Um... Okay. Thank you for joining us today for Lunch and Learn. Join us next week for Lunch and Learn number 159 as we get ready for the holiday of Purim. This Friday night, we have TGI Shabbos. Everyone is welcome to join us at synagogue for a community Shabbos dinner at 7 o'clock. And the Grand Purim celebration will be, we'll, we'll read the Megillah Wednesday evening at Shul about 730 and Thursday, on March 17, we'll have the grand celebration at 5.30. Men, women, and children are invited to come and celebrate and celebrate our Judaism proudly. Have a wonderful day and a wonderful rest of your week.